How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Wow, that, that was quick and efficient and um, powerful, Tom, and it's in its own sort of its own minimalistic way. It's all about when there's nothing left to subtract, you know? So true. It's so true. And, and our, our audience has heard it so many times. It is wonderful that each time they hear it a little bit different. With that in mind, can you introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight we have Annabeth of Second Act. Annabeth is a master's level clinician, drama therapist, and playwright. She is the executive director of Second Act, a national nonprofit headquartered in Boston with a mission to change the way people and communities respond to the impact of substance use through film, theater, and drama therapy. Annabeth has practiced and taught drama therapy nationally and internationally, most notably with the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine to support refugee youth. Her second play, Act Two, a story about the complexity of addiction recovery, was commissioned by Trinity Repertory Company and produced by the Rhode Island Department of Health in 2019. She is currently a senior advisor to Rhode Island Governor Daniel McKee on substance use harm reduction and recovery. Her first play was utilized by Senator Elizabeth Warren in Congress to support youth treatment legislation, and Rhode Island Governor McKee noted it as a reason why he signed the nation's first overdose prevention bills in the fall of 2021. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah, welcome, Anna. That that is quite a resume, and thank you so much right off the bat for for really making a difference in this world. So, how did you get started in all of this? That's a great question, and and I I I won't take up all the time, but I could just talking about my journey. Um, you know, I I was a sports kid and I was a theater kid, mm. so I yeah play both sides. <clears throat> But I really, I really loved theater growing up. Um, it was a place where I first really felt a sense of community. It was a place where I first felt like I could fully express myself and be serious or be silly and take on different characters and get to know myself better and those around me. And um, and that, you know, carried through my whole life. I started, I my first play was when I was seven years old. I was in Charlotte's Web. Oh, I love that. It has a baby spider. I had all of 30 seconds on stage and that was about it. Um, and then I, when I was finishing my undergraduate degree in San Francisco, I was going to a school that had a lot of master's programs in the expressive arts and they had a drama therapy program. So I started sitting in on some of their performances and going to the library and reading about drama therapy and really got inspired that this thing that I loved all of my life actually could be used as a way to, um, as, as a way to heal people and to spur social change and, you know, to do all the things that we know drama therapy does and that's that's kind of when I, my life took a really big turn. I applied to grad school um, at NYU and got in. And I started at NYU in the fall of 2014. And previous to starting that program, 
Um, my ex-boyfriend, my like first high school sweetheart, the person who gave you know brought me to prom, all those things, all those firsts, um, died of a fentanyl overdose. Mm. And I thought it to be a an isolated incident. Um, but then I had three more friends die from drug-related deaths in the fall of 2014 when I was starting grad school. Oh, and I realized. So um, that it was that there was something bigger going on, that it wasn't just one, you know, these random acts. Um, and and I also, you know, I obviously was grieving and I was really watching the impact um, it made on my community and thinking about, you know, how can I take what I'm learning at school and apply it to what's happening at home? And that's really when I started thinking and writing and talking and exploring this question, which is how is performance healing? And so when I was in, um, when I was writing my master's thesis, I decided to write a play and I got money from the university to perform the play and survey audience members on its impact. And, and then I started getting inquiries from people about, about the performance um, and about using it as a teaching tool for kids. And so I, uh, I decided to start a nonprofit um, when I got out of grad school. And, um, and funny enough, uh, when I was writing my master's thesis, I had read about this organization called Improbable Players that had been around since the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I really loved their model. Um, they took um, folks in recovery and had them perform live plays um, that were based on their life. And I really loved that model. And I used that model in my own work. Um, so fast forward to 2020, um, I had been running my organization for about five years. And um, and the board chair of Improbable Players approached me and said, our executive director is leaving. We love the work you're doing. Would you consider running our, our organization? And would you consider merging the two together? And, um, and I, you know, and I said, yes, let's figure it out. Let's do it. It was, it was the, we were in the midst of the pandemic. So it felt like a really wild thing to do in the middle of a global pandemic, but um, we merged the organizations together and now we're called Second Act and we have, you know, different areas of programming, but um, but that's kind of the short version of, of how I got where I am today. Wow, that's, that's an incredible story. Now, is, is drama therapy the same as psychodrama? Or is it not quite it's, the same? It's not quite the same. Yeah. So psychodrama is a little more, um, it's a little more intense, I guess. So usually with psychodrama, you're having participants perform scenes or perform, um, they could be past scenes or present um, scenes or issues from their life with no metaphor or like really no distance. So they may be playing themselves and they're talking to their, to a past loved one or somebody they're, you know, in, in relationship with currently. And with drama therapy, um, you're always using a little bit of metaphor or a little bit of distance. Hmm. So you wouldn't necessarily have a patient or a client playing out themselves as they are right now in the moment. You would have them play out a scene um, using a text that's similar to, you know, similar to their own life, 
but uh, but not exactly their their own life. And psychodrama predates uh, predates drama therapy. Psychodrama is J.L. Moreno, who was really amazing. And there's a really incredible relationship between psychodrama and drama therapy. I have used psychodrama in my own private practice work, um, but uh, but I find that drama therapy particularly if we're talking about working with people who have a um, a history of trauma or hold pretty significant mental health diagnoses, um, using giving them a little bit of space and room um, just helps create a little bit safer of an environment um, to explore some of those kind of like deep-seated issues or topics. Interesting distinction. Um, Marino, remarkable guy taught Joe Powers. Joe Powers was one of his students. Unfortunately, Joe is, has passed now, but but Joe taught me psychodrama. Oh, cool. So um, I I think it's such a powerful modality and and I think drama therapy is as well. Um, it's, I, I don't think people fully understand the power of theater. I wonder, could could mm. you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, we've been using theater as a way to reflect on our lives um, for thousands of years. And um, I think theater has the ability to hold complexity in a way that nothing else can. I mean, storytelling does that too. But there's something that's even more powerful about taking a story and having it embodied, particularly having it embodied live in front of you. And with drama therapy, the kind of the thing that's happening between an audience member and the play that they're watching or the character that they're watching is very similar to what happens in the room between a patient and their therapist in that um, there is there's a ritual and a structure. So you you go to therapy and you know you're there for 40 minutes or 50 minutes, and you have this relationship and this understanding with this therapist. And um, and there there's there that you know that same kind of thing happens in theater. You go into the theater and you know the lights are going to go down and you're going to be quiet and you're going to be there for an hour and a half and there's an intermission and you can laugh and you can cry and you can clap and all of those things. And then what happens with um, with the actors or the performance on stage is that the audience member will project onto the character or the play something that they connect to in their own life. And then while watching the characters and the action happening on stage, they themselves can you know, you kind of put yourself into the scene and then you're, but you're also reflecting on what's happening at the same time. So there's kind of like this action and reflection happening. And it's similar to what happens in the room with a client and a therapist in that the client may be projecting onto the therapist, um, you know, relationship issues or things that happened in their past. And through that relationship, they're able to work, work through things. Um, and it happens the same same with theater, whether it's a therapeutic theater performance or not. Um, I think it still often happens, particularly if it's if it's a topic or if there are characters on stage that 
remind you of something that's happened in your own life or somebody that you know in your own life. And um, I think particularly what I have seen is when you're able to create characters that are are compelling and um, and also are lovable, you can move people to take social action um, and or just personal action. I think that's one of the biggest things that I have seen in my work. How, how did you guys come up with the name Second Act? Oh, that's a great question. And you know, I think you're the first person to publicly ask me. So hmm. I really appreciate that since we did our name change. Um, so second act, um, I mean, most obviously, you know, folks that get into recovery have a second act or a second chance at life um, and or third or fourth, um, depending on what their journey looks like. And if you look at our, um, the, the other piece too, right, is that they're it's the second act of these two organizations. It was once two nonprofits that came together, and this is our second act of the organization. And if you look at our uh, logo, it looks like a heart, but it's actually two twos together. Mm -hmm. And it looks like a heart standing on a stage. And mm -hmm. so there's the two in there, there's the two organizations coming together. And then it's also just having your heart out on stage. So the rebranding and the renaming um, was a really beautiful process to go through and um, and brought up a lot more um, inquiry and conversation that I realized it was going to. How, how do people find Second Act? Yeah, so we have, you know, we have a website. We are secondact.org, um, second with a two. And uh, we're on social media. We are Second Act. You can find us on Instagram and on LinkedIn and, and Facebook. And then, you know, you can find our programs in, um, in high schools and middle schools, in treatment centers and recovery high schools and harm reduction centers all over the state of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, and we also do work in Northeast Ohio, in, um, in Cleveland and Akron. Uh, how, okay. How did you wind up in Ohio? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So our, um, our COO, Karen Snyder, um, who is, I think the first person you all talked to, she has been working for the organization for many years. Um, she was an actor. She's a person in long-term recovery and she started acting with improbable players, the organization before we merged, um, early in her recovery here in Boston. And um, and then she she had to move home for some family things a few years ago. And when she realized that she wasn't coming back to Boston and she also was made very aware of the impact of the opioid crisis in her community. Uh, she reached out to the organization. She said, hey, I think there's a need here. Would you be interested in, in trying out programming here? So. Um, so that was 2018 or 2019. And yeah, that's how we ended that's up. Great. In Ohio. It's great. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the actual process? So how do people join up? Um, how do they find you? And then just, just take me through from there. I'm, I'm 
I'm a person in recovery, let's say, and I'm mm-hmm. looking to, to get the support. What happens? Yeah, so I, I'll talk about like the holistic nature of the organization, which I which is something I love the most about our organization. So we are a recovery-friendly workplace, as you may know. So that means, to us, that means that the majority of our board members, our staff, our teachers, our actors, our therapists, um, our volunteers are all people with lived experience. And that could mean that they're in recovery from a substance use disorder. They're currently working on their recovery. Um, they're in long-term recovery, or they're somebody who's been impacted by loss or by somebody else's substance use. And um, why I say that first is that not only it, you know do we have all we have all the, these services and programs that service the community outside of our organization, but we also um, but also the people that work inside of the organization are impacted um, and support, you know, their recovery is supported by the work. So we have two areas of programming. We have our educational area. And so we have live performances that go out to mostly schools, middle schools and high schools. Those are live um, usually about 30 minute performances performed by actors in recovery with a talk back with the kids, um, much like, the programming that you do. Um, and, and that's our longest running program. And then we also have in-classroom workshops and after-school workshops where we dive a little bit deep, deeper into um, specific prevention education or social emotional learning, those kinds of things. But all of our teaching artists use theater, improv, drama therapy practices as a way to engage with the kids. So that's all of our um, our educational programming, and those are in in schools, um, in boys and girls clubs, in adolescent treatment centers, um, and you know uh, youth programming in the summer, that kind of thing. And then the other area is our treatment and our recovery services. And those we have um, two drama therapists, one here in New England and one in Ohio. Our drama therapist here in uh, in New England is also in long-term recovery. Uh, she's amazing. She's an awesome drama therapist, and she also um, is, is open about her recovery status. And um, so we have individual drama therapy and group drama therapy. And most of the folks that we serve with that, um, with those services are actually peers, like peer recovery specialists, people that are in recovery themselves that are working in recovery spaces. So they are outreach workers in the street going out to service unhoused folks. They're people in the hospital when somebody um, suffers an overdose. Um, They are people in recovery agencies connecting people with services or they're working in treatment facilities and hospitals. And what we found during the pandemic is that um, that a lot of them were really burnt out and there was a high um, instance of job turnover and reoccurrence of symptoms and going back to use and overdose and suicide. Um, and I, I would say that we we're seeing that across the board in healthcare. And so we've really focused on um, on supporting the peer recovery specialists because not only, you know, 
not only were they impacted by the pandemic, but they also have been impacted by the epidemic. And those two things, you know, kind of hit at the same time. Um, so, but we also treat people in early recovery as well. Yeah, I mean, COVID really created so much stress, global stress, and there's, you know, a cortisol response, and and it's um, it really had an impact. And and I was really hoping that that COVID would, in some way, depathologize a lot of the mental health issues and the substance use issues that so many have faced and have been afraid to come out of the shadows and talk about because they know they're going to be judged and stigmatized. So how do you how do you work with that barrier? You know, because a lot of people are still afraid to acknowledge what's going on with them. Yeah, I think it depends on what program you're talking about, but I think one of the biggest pieces is through story and through relatable characters. Um, we got into making short films, like one minute films during the pandemic, and we've been making, um, we've been uh, commissioned or, or contracted with state health departments to make short films to encourage people to carry and get trained in naloxone. And yeah. You know, with that and our performances in schools, what I find is that the if you can give somebody a story that they relate to and then you give them an opportunity to reflect and talk with somebody who has self-identified as somebody with lived experience, they're way more willing to have a conversation because the 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 characters or the story warms them up to the conversation, makes them feel a little bit more um, at ease. It also, it also may connect some dots for them that they may have not realized were there. Um, you know, when we say addiction or people struggling with substance use, a lot of people, if they haven't personally experienced it, they think, oh, it looks this certain way, you know? And mm -hmm. so if you're able to give them a story where the person looks like them or looks like their aunt or, you know, or whomever, um, they may recognize things about themselves or their family that they didn't, they didn't recognize before. And then that peer to peer piece, when you self-disclose that you yourself are in recovery or you have, you know, like somebody like me who's suffered a lot of loss to overdose, people then also are much more likely to ask questions or disclose themselves that they may be struggling or they have a loved one that's struggling. So, so and, you create an yeah. environment of safety for them and mm -hmm. no judgment zone. Yeah. You know, and I, the thing that I, that really was fascinating to me or has been is we, we've been doing, um, you know, performances and workshops in healthcare settings and um, when Amy and I go into places and disclose that we have lived experience and we're also clinicians, we will get a line of people, healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, social workers, psychiatrists that come up and say, hey, I'm in recovery too. And I've never felt safe enough to say it to my colleagues, you know? And so that I think off, you know, what I was taught as a clinician is that I had to be kind of like a blank slate. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't disclose that, but I, 
I think something that really that the recovery community does well is that self-disclosure piece is like is is saying, hey, me too. I've struggled with this too. And I I don't think you can really get people to trust you or to to open up to you um oftentimes if if you don't have if you aren't able to talk about your own lived experience it makes such a big impact why do you think it does make such an impact that lived experience that honesty uh i think you know obviously the stigma um there's so much shame and that's it's just historical structural stigma and shame and you know it's structural in that you know we still um it's illegal to use certain drugs um and and so you know if you use certain drugs you're bad you know or like you did something wrong so and that all trickles down you know and and the media we consume and all of you know it's definitely changed even since i've in the last 10 years it's it's shifted a lot the conversation and the way we talk about substance use but um but the structures and the way people talk about addiction is incredibly shameful and stigmatizing and you know and all of that stuff gets internalized so people believe that they are bad um and and not only do they not feel like they can ask for help or tell you that they're struggling because they're ashamed you know and they're ashamed of losing connection to you or you judging them or whatever the the systems we operate in tell us that it's not safe to say I'm struggling, you know, you could, if you, if you disclose that you're using drugs, you could lose your job. You could lose your child. You could lose your funding. You could, you know, like there's so many ways in which you can, you know, or you lose a connection to a loved one. Um, I mean, we've tried to decriminalize so many things, but people are still considered bad and almost criminal you know, mm-hmm. when they're using and making you think of something, eh, Tom? I don't know. It does ring a bell. I like Pavlov. So I came across Second Act through a, a mutual, part of Second Act. And so I, I just saw one of their posts and was like, this sounds interesting. I'm like, whoa, this the world needs more, you know, recovery programs like this that aren't about the stigma and the playing into the meme of you're, you're a bad person, you're a criminal. How do I become a less bad person? Mm. I mean, really, even the word recovery has yeah. has connotations around that. We're going to recover up the stuff that that we're doing, but we'll, we can talk about the power of words later. So go on, Tom. And I'm thinking this this is such a perfect companion to drug story theater. Mm. Addiction and seduction and recovery aren't limited to adolescence. You're at most risk as an adolescence, but as we learned doesn't go away it's minimized but doesn't go away yeah yeah it's, it's true i mean we have a lot a lot in common and it would be wonderful down the road if we can find a way to collaborate around this but um you know one of one of the phrases that came to mind when you were talking about your entire team all of whom well, most of whom have lived experience is contribute to society to help with your sobriety you know, that's one of the things that we teach at Drug Story Theater, which our, which our listeners know, you know, is our adolescent form, really, of, of second act. Um, 
But there is something powerful for these performers up on that stage, being absolutely vulnerable, and yet nobody is attacking them. I mean, that is remarkable. And they feel so, so empowered, but also I think they feel that they're giving back, mm-hmm. that they are contributing to other people's sobriety that, so that they don't ever have to go down, so the audience doesn't have to go down the same path that they went down. Is, is, you think that's the experience of, of your folks? Yeah, I I know it is. I'm you know such a, there's uh, storytelling and telling our stories is such a big part of recovery. Um, it's, uh, so many models um, of recovery are, are based off of of um, of saying hi. My name is and this is my story. Right. Um, so I think that piece is really important. And I I know for our actors, giving them you know, giving them parts, giving them characters that are similar to themselves, um, but maybe a little bit different or a family, you know, this performative family that they're in or the story that they're in that's similar um, also helps them kind of uncover things about themselves or their past that they may not have fully unpacked yet. Um, And you bring up Rachel. I mean, Rachel is such a beautiful example of um, the impact that theater can have on somebody. Um, When Rachel came to us and I've asked them, I've talked about them on a few different podcasts. So I have their, their blessing to talk about their journey, but when they, they came to us in 2015 and they, um, they, we, I cast them in the role of the daughter and the daughter in this one play is like the advocate. She's kind of like, Hey, my sister is or My brother is struggling to the parents. What are we going to do? You know, that kind of connector piece. And, and Rachel in her own life had a sister who was struggling with substance use. And so she had a very mirrored experience to this, this character. And she played this character for probably two years and two years in, out of the blue, she came to me and she said, hey, I think I'm struggling with my own substance use. And, and you know, this was however many years ago, seven years ago. She's now been in recovery for seven years. And we had her keep playing the role of the sister, especially in her early recovery, because I didn't feel like it made sense for her to move over into a character that was struggling with substance use until she really had moved through her own recovery, Mm. at least the beginning recovery. And then a couple of years into her recovery, I had this role come up of this, um, of this uh, veteran and who is like actively seeking treatment and starting a recovery journey and also um, and also kind of questioning their gender identity. And um, so I asked Rachel, do you feel like where you're in your, you know, where you're at in your recovery journey, you can play somebody in early recovery or still struggling with substance use? And they said, yeah, I, I think I'm in a good place to do that. So they came into this new role of Alan and through that role realized that they themselves were wanted to explore their gender identity and through the role were, was able to explore their gender identity. And, um, and it's, it's been 
so wild and fascinating to watch them um, realize their own substance use issues, move into, you know, the beginning of their recovery, question their gender identity, like, you know, come out into their queerness and all of its kind of full expression, um, all through these different characters that have kind of like helped inform and help them reflect and, um, and kind of become the person that they are today. So I, that, that about this, this kind of theater is, is really to me fascinating. I hope to have time one day to write about it. Um, but I, I see that with our actors that not just substance use, but their relationship with their mom that may be, you know, mirrored on stage, um, that there was something that, that they, that happened in the past that they're realizing is happening now on stage that they want to go back and kind of fix in their own life. You know, I see those parallels happen all of the time and, you know, cast the theater kids are so, are so quick to become like lifelong friends. Um, and then you throw in people with lived experience and in recovery. I mean, they are like family. So they watch out for each other. They check in with each other. And what we found is that, you know, a major pillar of our work is that we all relate to each other because theater is a part of our recovery capital. You know, being expressive, being artists is a big piece of what um, what helps our recovery journeys. Um, and then being in that creative community also is a big piece of our recovery capital. And I just, I love that the arts um, can be a, a piece of somebody's recovery, you know, just like their medication or their daily, you know, weekly therapy Absolutely. or yoga practice. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we have this phrase medication assisted treatment. I'm sure you're familiar. And my, what I try to teach is the medication is assisting what is really happening. It's not mm -hmm. the medication that's really doing the treatment. It's that relationship, that, that sense of respect and value that leads to trust. And trust, as we know, is based on the neurohormone oxytocin. Tocin, not oxycontin, but oxytocin, which which is this remarkable social empathic component. And, and the part about what you were talking is this woman, this person who was playing the sister and then switch over, this is not confined to the walls of a therapy office. This is in front of hundreds and thousands of people. Mm -hmm. So what is, what do you think that experience is like? I mean, it takes enormous courage, first of all, for, for people to get up on stage the first time. Yeah. Because they don't know what's going to happen. But I find that, that then they go, whoa, this is, this is so amazing. So what do you make of that? I, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, um, theater, you know, in drama therapy, we call it like rehearsal for life. You know, you can come mm -hmm. into a room and you can rehearse the kind of person you want to be, or you want to take on a new role, but you don't know what it looks like or how to do it. So you can, you can be a character that all, that does those things. And I think just doing that in a rehearsal room or 
in a room with a drama therapist is powerful, but then going out and trying it out in front of a huge group of people um, just affirms your ability to step into um, whatever that change you're making or to try out that new thing. And yeah, I'll, I'll leave it. That's, that's my, my first thought. I had another thought, but it went away. (laughs) Tom, how do you, how do you relate to this? I mean, you don't have substance use, but, but you do theater. Sure. And I think that's when we mentioned exploring gender identity, I'm thinking, isn't that another sort of root cause of substance use is like, it's a misapplied treatment for gender dysphoria. I <laughs> think like some, someone thinks what's wrong with them and it doesn't occur to them that maybe they haven't explored my identity. And coupled with it, with the shame of it, right? Exactly. The fear how other people will judge you. Because mm-hmm. that's the sort of image that's been drilled into our heads for so long in, in like media is the quote unquote degenerate is not straight, not cis, quote unquote junkie, unemployed. You should be ashamed. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think that that kids sometimes using substances make them feel more like they do fit in, or at least levels the playing field. And I when I was First, starting out as a clinician, I worked um, in a clinic treating people who had developmental disabilities um, and uh, and co-occurring substance use disorder. And what I heard from a lot of them was that um, if everybody in the room is drunk, then nobody is noticing my disability. Mm. We're all high, then we're all kind of acting the same way. And I think I think that's true of a lot of um, of kids that are, you know, maybe genderqueer or or other types of queer or have anxiety or are, you know, deeply empathetic or are suffering trauma at home is they feel that piece of them makes them feel like they don't fit in. And using drugs is, you know, not a great coping mechanism is often a faulty coping mechanism and can create problems, but it, but in the moment can make them feel like they fit in or they can hide that part of themselves or that part of themselves is just a little easier to, to live with for the moment. Yeah. So it, 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 it makes it's a sense. Shortcut. It's a shortcut to, to socialization, you know, mm-hmm. because all of a sudden you, you're doing something and other people are doing it. And, you know, there is that, that sense of, interesting sense of community there's certainly you know huge disinhibition with the the dopaminergic component you know that's that's activating the limbic response where you are irrational and impulsive um not really thinking about the future how how do people sign up for second act yeah it's you can um so we're always looking for actors and we we also are looking for teaching artists, people that um, are able to teach theater and and also people in recovery who are creative professionals. So on our website, there there's a page to contact us or to, um, to sign up for an audition if you are an actor, to contact us if you are interested in volunteering or are interested in, um, in in facilitating any of our other services. We would love another drama therapist in recovery or expressive arts therapist in recovery. If you're out there listening, we'd love to talk to you. And um, I think what makes 
you know, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but what makes the organization so, so enjoyable to work in is not only is it a creative environment, but, you know, we, and not only are most of us in recovery or have lived experience, um, we have worked really hard to structure a working environment that prioritizes and supports the mental health and well-being of our employees. So what that looks like to us is that um, everybody has access to two free drama therapy sessions a year. Um, they have access to recovery planning at any moment, at any time. If, they, um, if they're struggling with their uh, their mental health or their substance use and have a reoccurrence of symptoms and start using again. We hook them up with a recovery coach and work on a six month plan and do a six month check-in um, all free of charge. We make sure that nobody loses their job, um, that they're able to carry out their job and that they're, that they're kind of shored up with the recovery sports that they need. Um, we do group therapy together as a staff once a quarter, which is really fun. That sounds um, great. Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's coming up in a couple of weeks and it's going to be holiday themed. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and then we also have we have a, uh, a committee, a recovery friendly workplace committee that's made up of um, board members and staff people who create our policies and our protocols and our support around how we um, how we ensure that we continue to be um, a, a workplace that prioritizes mental health and well-being. So um, I just I love that about the organization. It just feels like just feels so good to work in a place where I know I can be fully myself and supported. Yeah. And you're, you're modeling what, what we want the rest of the communities to do, which mm -hmm. is to say, you know, you know, one of my phrases, addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. It's just the way the brain works. It's mm -hmm. nothing to do with being a good person or bad person. It's just the way the brain is. Mm -hmm. So we have an opportunity to really, really help people. And, and listeners, please, you know, think about this in your own life there. There's probably someone somewhere that you know who could use a place like the second act, you know? Mm -hmm. There really, there really must be. I, I'm, I'm curious, before we get to the two questions, you create new shows. How, how often are you creating new shows? Is it the content mm -hmm. that you're getting from the drama therapy that creates those new shows? What's the process? Yeah, um, we don't create new shows all the time, you know, all that often because it, it costs a lot of money and it's a lot of time and um, and funders don't, <laughs> don't want to pay for it. But we did recently actually write a new show. It's called I'll Be There For You. Um, if you're interested, there is a public performance at the Lawrence Boys and Girls Club on December 12th or 14th in the evening at 6 p.m. It'll be on our website. And um, that new show was a, it was about two years. I did a full year of interviews. Um, I was, I took, uh, and you'll probably know this, um, the the kind of prevention um uh, framework of, um, of protective factors. So those are things that, um, things that support young people and often, um, keep them from using substances and, or, 
help support them if they do start using substances. So that's something like a trusted adult, a sports team, <laughs> theater, <laughs> um, you know, things like that. And um, so we use that framework. We also wanted to, we wanted this new show to highlight um, queer and BIPOC youth, so Black and Indigenous mm -hmm. and people of color. So we did interviews um, with all folks of color, mostly queer folks, um, and we talked about protective factors and substance use and recovery. And, um, and then all of those interviews were then brought to a room of writers, three writers, um, all um, folks of color, all in varying degrees of their, you know, recovery journey, um, some early recovery, some late recovery, and they took about three months. So yeah, so the these three writers in recovery, they took all of the interviews, and then they kind of mined through them for themes and characters, and then wrote the play from that. And and then we went and we performed it in front of um, some Wayside Youth and Family youth to get their feedback first. Does this feel real? Does it feel right? Do you have any critiques? That kind of thing. Um, and now uh, now it's out on tour in, in schools. That is great. Yeah. That's so great. You know, it's, it's such important work that you're doing. Um, I want to just get to the two questions of the I am. So the I am is saying, you know, we're always doing the best we can, influenced and responding to four domains, our home domain, our social domain, which is the rest of the world, those two domains are outside, and the internal domains of the biological domain of your brain and body, and what I call the IC domain, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because these domains interact, a small change in any one domain can have a big effect. We don't need to change everything. Mm -hmm. So Anna, based on what we're talking about, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? I, I have found for myself one small change that made a big, that makes a big impact, particularly if I remember to do it, is um, taking time in the morning when I wake up, when I first wake up before I do anything, to check in with myself and to practice a little ritual. And that could be as simple as making a cup of tea or making coffee. Um, and the thing that I like to do because I'm a writer and I'm a creative type is I, um, I have a book of photographs and they are, um, there's one photograph for each day. And I will sit with my coffee and I look at this book and I look at the, the day's photograph and I think about it and making that little shift in like slowing down my morning and just taking a moment to check in with myself and do something that feels a little bit inspiring and a little bit creative really just shifts the way I orient to the rest of the day. If I jump out of bed and I get on my phone or I rush off to work or whatever, um, I feel like I just have a different relationship to, to everything. And I, and that I say that little ritual, having that little ritual and check in with myself because you don't necessarily have to do that in the morning. It could be at any moment when you feel overwhelmed or you're about to go and give a big presentation or you're gonna go do something scary, taking a moment 
and checking in with yourself and practicing a little ritual, I find just helps um, helps me show up more authentically and I'm able to honor myself better and I'm just able to s- slow down a little bit. That's a great small change. So, so in essence, sort of slowing down and being a bit more reflective mm-hmm. in that moment instead of being reflexive, to wonder instead of worry, to just mm-hmm. enjoy that moment. Um, wonderful small change. The second, the second truth of the I am, everyone's got one. Everyone is interested through their IC domain, what you think or feel about them. And you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected in your biological domain. You're part of someone's home or social domain. So this means, and the second truth, you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you wanna be. Annabeth, leader of second act drama therapy, what kind of influence do you want to be? Hmm. I think the influence I want to make, you know, obviously a positive influence. Um, but I think what I like to, what I think I do best is, um, is by showing my vulnerability and and also honoring um, my boundaries. And I do this with my staff at work. I do this with my husband at home, um, with my brother, and you know, and I do it with my clients too. But um, <clears throat> but I, and I say vulnerability and boundary because you don't want to be like overly vulnerable or overly open, it's important to also have those boundaries and to keep, you know, and to keep some things to yourself and to keep yourself safe. And, and I think, um, I think being able to, um, being able to show people how to do that is something that I have found makes a a profound impact on, um, on the way other people show up in relationship to me and then also show up in relationship to their to their work or to whatever whatever they may be engaging with. Does that make sense? Is that a that yeah, question? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a powerful influence. And you know, you you are. I mean, you have probably helped us save more lives than you'll ever know and help other people help other people as well. That's the key to this. No one does this alone. We're in this together, but you're not going to come out of the shadows if you think you're gonna be judged. And places like Second Act, Drugs Free Theater, so many others, it's it's not gonna judge you. So thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Folks, uh, they can, find you where again at secondact.org we yeah we are second act at org um and second is with a two and d yeah that's great thanks so much anna tom as always it's a pleasure folks we'll see you all next week thanks <laughs>